Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. My name is Kyle Burkholder. I'm pastor here at Covenant Church, just one of the elders that uh, has the great privilege of leading this church in the mission to know Jesus and make him known. And, and today we continue on with our sermon series called The Way. And uh, this week around uh, the globe, this is, as Anna mentioned, it's Palm Sunday. And we are not going to be going through the actual Palm Sunday story, but it is important to sort of note that in, as this global church uh, we're entering into that same Holy Week season, that triumphal entry when Jesus on the back of the donkey and, and the palm branches are laid down as he enters into Jerusalem for his final, his final time with his friends before his, uh, his crucifixion. And, and so we're, we're a little further back in the story than that. Uh, we are on the journey towards that moment, uh, but we find ourselves uh, just a bit further back in uh, the land of Samaria in hostile territory as Jesus has begun to attract larger crowds. And as he's attracting these crowds, uh, what you and I might do uh, is if we got fame and fortune, if we, if we had more and more people uh, throwing their affection at us or, or listening to what we said or deciding to follow us, so what you and I might do is figure out what they want, the catnip or the, the little things that they like, and give them more of that, whatever drew them, give them more, because that sounds like fame and fortune and all the fun we could ever ask for. And yet what Jesus does... Um, well, the title of the sermon today is How to Hate Your Family. So, not exactly. Uh, Luke chapter 14, we'll pick it up. Chapter 14, verse 25, Scripture says this, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. We need to see first, just in, in looking at this, as these crowds gather, Jesus doesn't give them what they want to hear. Jesus gives them truth. And he does it in the, the frame and the filter of discipleship. He's addressing who can be his disciple, who can call themselves a follower of him. And so twice he says, this type, you cannot be my disciple, or if you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. This is about discipleship, and Jesus is giving us the foundation of discipleship, which is that we are required to reposition our affections and to recast our identity. And this is difficult teaching because it requires a foundational shift to happen first instead of what we more like to do, which is to pinch at the edges and, and hint at the margins and fix little bits and pieces on the periphery because that's a lot less painful. I love, uh, love don't mishear me, I love the, the kind of Christian self-help world of the books and devotionals and the teachings and the bits and the pieces. They're, they're additive and they're helpful, but they're worthless without this foundation. Without the foundation that our affections and our identity have to be placed in Christ, all of the extra things, all of the good things become worthless. 
your best life now and your total money makeover and biblical manhood and getting out of your own head. All the things, those are the great things, good advice, great wisdom, real truth, short of having it based on the foundation that we are identified in Christ and not in ourselves, short of having it based on the affections of Christ as primary and everything else falling under them, they're worthless. It's moving deck chairs on the Titanic, as they say. It's making things look nice, but the ship's still going down. And for you and I, we have to recognize the foundational truth Jesus is laying out, even though it's difficult. So let's talk about how to hate your family. You ever sign up for something at an introductory price, at a low, low price? You ever get a great deal? Or if you are like me, uh, my age-ish or older, you probably remember being up at 2 a.m. and watching infomercials. Whenever the show that you were watching the, 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 the World Series game ends or whatever, and it's 1 a.m. and you, the infomercials start, and Ronco, that guy, God bless Ronco, the electric food dehydrator, and then there was that rotisserie thing, set it, and forget it, and like the chicken's just cooking, you're like, I could, everybody's a chef now. All those things, I love those products mostly because I just love to see how they're selling them. The, the psychology behind how you sell electric food dehydrators to millions of Americans, how you sell two of them, because that was always the pitch, Right? You don't just need one. If you call now, we'll send you a second food dehydrator. You can make so many apple chips and beef jerky and all the things you've ever dreamed of. And I love that stuff. I love those commercials. I only got caught once. In, in college, my ro- college roommate and I, at one point, we bought, we bought into the Time Life Singers and Songwriters CD catalog, which was a bit of a problem. It was a really good deal at the time. It was like $4 for the first CD. It was great. There's Joni Mitchell, and there's James Taylor, and there's Paul Simon. This is going to be great. And then like, you know, a week later, uh, another CD shows up, and I don't remember which of us had it on uh, a credit card, or which of us should have had a credit card at zero, but one of us had one. And it was like, you know, $8,000 per next CD that shows up. And they just keep coming, and they're like, you can always return them. And there's, how do you return anything? What are you talking about? And so we just ended up with like the greatest catalog of singers and songwriters songs ever. And one of us has crushing uh, financial debt. It's a bait and switch, though. You think you're getting in easy, and then the subscription kind of comes back to kill you. If you're old enough to remember when you would uh, have a magazine, and you'd scroll, you'd flip through the magazine, there'd always be that page where you get 12 CDs for a penny. And a lot of us, a lot of us, I saw, oh, I see thumbs up. Those are, that's not good. This is, you should not have fallen for this. But a lot of us checked off the 12 CDs we wanted on the page. We sent our penny in. And then, you know, down the line, you start getting charged $100 per CD and they just keep showing up. But it's, it's bait and switch. Why do I say this? What is the point? Jesus turns from his disciples to the large crowds, all on the edge of their seat, amazed by the electric food hider, amazed by this incredible great deal that it must be to follow this Jesus. And instead of no introductory costs or uh, low, low prices, instead of all those things, instead of offering levels and tiers, instead of offering the bait that he can then switch them on later, Jesus simply says, do you want to follow me? Here's what it's going to cost you. Relative to the amount you're going to have to love me and put your heart in me, you're going to hate your family. And remember the context. In some ways, this is lighter than it sounds. In some ways, it's much heavier than it sounds. It's, It's heavier than it sounds in that in the Jewish world, Family is everything. Family is your identity. Family is your occupation. Family is, is it's who you live with. You don't move away and live a thousand miles from family. When you would see a family compound, it would be grandma lives in this room and, and cousins live here and sisters live there and uncles live here. And you kind of live in a semicircle compound house with a central gathering place. Family was everything. And so if Jesus is saying, you're going to have to hate them if you want to follow me, which 
is jarring. So it's heavier than even we see it, and in a different way, it's lighter because the construction here, in the language, the construction is actually such that it's saying, in relation to how much you are going to need to love me, it will be as if you hate your family. You're going to need to not just reprioritize your life a little bit, you're going to have to so reprioritize your life that you're going to feel like you are neglecting and hating everything but me. This is uh, the two biblical meanings of hate. One is like active hostility and one is in comparison. When in Jacob in Gen- uh, Genesis 29 had Rachel and Leah, he loved Rachel, he hated Leah, but what it really meant was that he loved Rachel more. He loved Leah, but phew, he loved Rachel. His love with Rachel was such that his love for Leah looked like hate by comparison. And Jesus is looking at all those around him and saying, you're going to have to love me so much that it's going to make you feel like in comparison you are hating all of those around you. So the command here, to be really clear, isn't hate. It's love. Jesus just gets at it through kind of a back door. Jesus is telling us that in order to follow him, we must first love him. And to love him is then to hate others by comparison. He won't settle for being fourth on your list or eighth on your list or twelfth on your list or just a thing you do on Sundays. He won't settle for that. He says, if that's your idea of what it means to follow me, you're not going to follow me. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, broke down famously kind of the four Greek loves, all, all tied up in this word we call love. There was storge love, eros love, agape love, philia love. He was all the different types of love, parental love and charitable love and sexual love and, and kind of that sibling brotherly love. And you would note that Jesus takes every single one of these in this passage. Jesus, Jesus, in addressing this large crowd, takes each and every one of those possible meanings. You possibly could have said, well, maybe he didn't mean it this way. No. He mentions your mother and your father and your wife and your children and your brothers and your sisters and even yourself. He names them all. He says, you're going to have to love me so much that it's going to feel like you hate all of them. Jesus is saying he's after our full love, our Rachel love. Because Jesus over and over tells us that what he offers us, which is his love, will make everything else pale by comparison. This isn't an invitation to do something that's unseen or uh, never before experienced. This is a, a responsive sort of love. He's saying, once you see how much I love you, once you see what lengths I will go to, you will understand the kind of love I'm inviting you into. But the key to growing as a disciple of Jesus is not discipline or deed as we might make it. It is love. It's not seven easy steps or three ways to a new this or five ways to get better. No, that's a great way to get better abs. That's not how you follow Jesus. Jesus says you start with a foundation of a love unimaginable, and from there, we watch the rest tumble out. If you want to grow in prayer, grow in love. If you want to become more faithful, grow in love. If you want to kick that sin habit, grow in love. First, we rightly always talk about the power of uh, expulsive power of a new affection, as it was originally called in the sermon preached in the 1800s, the expulsive power of a new affection. That when some new affection comes into our life, it replaces an old affection. Jesus wants to be the new affection that replaces all other affections, that your behavior is driven by your affections. What you love drives your behavior. It reveals itself, not the other way around. And so as uh, we're into spring now and summer is coming and people are going to start thinking about summer and having to go to a a beach or a swimming pool and having to go, oh gosh, I put on the COVID-19 and I need to get it off and what do I do? 
your affections will be seen in that process. Your affection for washboard abs or vanilla bean ice cream will be clearly seen. Which do you love more? The desire is greater for which? And you will choose the one that you have the greater desire for. We always pursue our greatest affections. If that's vanity or material wealth or status or significance or belonging, we always chase the thing that is our greatest affection. And the, the, the thing that we like to say around here is you'll get it. If you chase that thing long enough, you'll probably get it. So I'm not going to say if you, if you want to chase wealth, you, you'll never get it, only Jesus. No, if you want to chase wealth, you'll probably die with a lot of money in the bank. Because typically what we chase with our fullest affections, we usually get in life. The question is, do you really want what you're chasing? If you work your whole life for money, you'll have lots of it. If you want to eliminate sin or a habit or an aspect of life that wasn't what you wanted it to be, you could probably root out that one thing. But if you want to know true life, there's something greater that you have to commit to. Because only when Jesus becomes greater, when only Jesus becomes primary, only then does real change occur. I would say that good things happen when Jesus becomes greater. Jesus is saying that to follow him, he has to be your chief affection, your first love. St. Augustine, I'll paraphrase what he said about this. He said, the thing you need to go from being a coward to being courageous. The thing you need to go from being bitter to being happy and peaceful and forgiving. The thing you need to go from being inferior to feeling confident. The love of Jesus Christ has to be so real that it eclipses all of these other things. It has to be so prominent in your life that you cannot see the other things. Eclipses, literally comes in front of them so you can't even see the thing you used to be about. It is the love of Jesus that is the essence of transformed character that you long for. It's the love of Jesus that is the essence of the discipleship you've been called into. And so if you love football or your career or Netflix or whatever more, then you'll get that. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to prioritize me. You have to love me in such a way that I eclipse those other things. If anyone does not love me with this sort of love, they can't be my disciple, he says. Verse 26, this is what he says. If you don't love me with that sort of love, you can't be my disciple. Okay, so we have to reposition our affections. I can get that. How? becomes the question, like, okay, that's where I'm going to turn to the self-help books. Is how do I do that then? And Jesus has the answer. Verse 26 says, if you don't love me with this sort of love, you can't be my disciple. Verse 27 says, so whoever doesn't carry their cross and follow me can't be my disciple. 27 answers verse 26, whoever doesn't carry their cross and follow me can't be my disciple. There's some connection here between these two ideas. Tim Keller pointed this out, and I just, I just love it. This idea that we would take up our cross is the greatest grace you and I can be given. It sounds like a burden, to be honest, when you first read that. But it's the greatest grace. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus says, you have to love me with this sort of love. The only way you're going to get there is to carry your cross and follow me. What he doesn't say is you have to take up my teaching and follow me. He doesn't say you have to take up my example and follow me. You have to take up my advice and follow me. Trying to do any of those things would just crush you. Because you can't carry the weight of those things. Try to pick up the Sermon on the Mount one day. Go to Matthew chapter 5 and just start reading and see what happens. Don't envy. Don't lust. Oh, yeah, if you just look at someone else's spouse, that's, you, might as, you might as well. You're over the cliff already. Love your enemies. Also pray for them. Forgive everyone for everything, forever, always. 
And don't worry while you're at it. Be poor in spirit. Figure that one out. Good luck is what I would say. Start going down the checklist of all the things Jesus has taught and say, if that's what you're supposed to carry in order to have to find a way to follow him, if that's the things you have to accomplish in order to get into his grace, good luck. You're never going to get there. And so what he instead does is offers us a cross. Hmm. Instead of the crushing weight of expectation of trying to fulfill a list of the perfect Savior and follow his example, we're instead offered his cross. Let me explain it this way. Imagine you're on a camp out, seven-year-old, eight-year-old with you, just you, child or grandchild, and you're staring up at the night sky, perfect clear night sky. You can see all the constellations. You look over at a seven-year-old and you say, what do you think? And they say, it's amazing. It's beautiful. What's that one? And you go, oh, it's Orion's. But what's that one? That's the Big Dipper. Look, shooting star. And this child is totally captured by the immensity of the galaxies, by the uncountable number of stars and celestial bodies, by the brightness of the moon, making it as bright as day. And in that tense, I mean, the sweet moment, absent of tension, little hand reaches over and grabs yours, says, I think I know what I want to be when I grow up. Yeah, what's that? I'm going to be an astronaut. I'm going to explore all of it. To which you would rightly respond by reaching over into the bag you brought with you and handing them a college trigonometry textbook <laughs> and saying, you better get studying, buddy. No one would do that. That's not how you become an astronaut. What would you do? you would fan the flame of this love of the cosmos. You would fan the flame of the love of, of all that's unexplored. You would begin to immerse yourself in that world. You would, you would fan the flame of love, not create the list that they would have to then begin to check off. And yet so many of us, when we approach Christianity, we think of it the same way. We begin in the, our very first moments of, of meeting Jesus. We're like, this love is awe-inspiring, unbelievable. I can't even take it. And what we think we need to do is then somebody hands us a book and they go, there goes communion. And they say, that's it. That's the whole thing. This is the thing. You got to do it. Fill it. And then you and I, as followers of Jesus, we walk around the world. Failures. Inadequate. Incapable. Why? I can't do this. I can't fill that checklist. I can't do the thing it's called me to do. But this is what we think we've been taught. That there's got to be a list in here that I have to fulfill. There has to be something in here that, that tells me what it means to love Jesus. This is what it means to love Jesus. And the God of the universe says, no, no, no. Look back to the cross. Look back to the love of God. Grow in your awe for the love of God. And from that, watch the desire for all the other things tumble out. From that, watch the beauty tumble out. Carry your cross, yeah. But it's not about what you can do. It's about taking an identity and a positional shift in life, putting yourself, instead of in the place of someone who needs to fulfill all of these rules, it's reminding ourselves that we are in the place of the condemned for just a moment. That you and I are dead men, dead women walking in so many ways. 
that the essence of discipleship is to realize that we died with Christ when he died. And then we become identified with him in his resurrection. The Bible teaches over and over, the minute you believe in Jesus, the minute you confess him and follow him, in that minute you trust him as Lord, you died. You were buried with him. Colossians 3 says your life is now hidden in him, that the old has gone, that the new has come, that you are a new creation. And so the work of death in this life is not the same as the work of life over death. And yet we've confused the two. God sees you through the life and the work and the death of Jesus. Your sins have been paid for. You have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who lives, but he who lives in you. So take up your cross takes on a different tone at that point. It's a daily reminder of our position that through the cross we are made new, that we are not ourselves, that we are identified in him. Said plainly, he joined you in your condemnation on the cross so that you might join him in his resurrection in the heavens. And when you are invited to take up your cross daily, it is that reminder to carry that. Carry that reminder that he joined you in condemnation so that you might join him in resurrection. So you live in the cross, you carry the cross. Whose cross? It's one and the same. And every day we live in the shadow of the cross. We remember what it says about who we are. You are called to grab that cross and then see your ego crucified daily and see your agenda crucified daily and see your priorities crucified daily. You see all the things that came before Christ daily crucified. Identifying as someone carrying a cross does something to you. You couldn't carry a cross unless you were forced to. You wouldn't have wanted to. You were bound. You were arrested. You were given a cross. You and I are bound and arrested in Christ now. We are captive in his love. It is the best kind of freedom. It is so counterintuitive. We are all about freedom. We are Americans. Freedom, freedom, freedom. There is no greater freedom than being captive by the love of Christ, than being bound in the love of Christ, than being arrested by his salvation. Being a disciple of Jesus means you aren't your own anymore because Jesus is not a life additive but a life replacement. That's foundational. Jesus isn't a life additive but a life replacement. How hard is that in a modern individualist society to consider that he is not here to add bits and pieces to the edges of our life, but he is here to replace us inside out fully. So Jesus looks 2,000 years ago at the growing crowds and he says, you know what, you're going you're gonna to have to love me more than you think. You're going to have to follow me, but to follow me is to give up control, to abandon your rights, to carry a cross. And the thing about a cross is it's trouble. You can't slip a cross in your back pocket and go on about your day, can you? It's cumbersome and it's humiliating. It's weighty. At times it's hard. So it is with discipleship. It's cumbersome. It can be weighty. And at times it can feel really hard. And yet Jesus came to say that his burden was easy, his yoke was light, that, that the weight he was going to put on us was going to be lesser. Which is to say that if we know who we are in him, that we are identified in him, that the cross doesn't weigh us down anymore. And while we carry the cross in discipleship, he carries the ultimate cross. And you and I are no longer bound under the condemnation that comes with the cross, but instead we get the growth that comes with walking in his footsteps. 
Jesus is here to transform us, to rescue us, secure us for eternity. That isn't the same thing as promising us a, a life of beach vacations. And we confuse the two. Why is this hard? Jesus doesn't offer introductory pricing. He doesn't offer us a pay-as-you-go plan. It's sort of this beautiful all-or-nothing quality to what Jesus is offering. You're either carrying your cross daily, you're identifying with me, he says. You either identify with me, you love me first, or you don't. And that's where the second piece of the passage comes in. I'm not going to read it to you, but I'll kind of summarize it. It basically says, Jesus is saying you have to count the cost before you choose to take on something this big. If you're going to build a house, he says, you, you count the cost so you don't end up with walls and no roof because then what was the point? It's still no shelter. Count the cost. You have to know going in exactly what you're getting into so that you know you can finish what you started. He goes, you don't go into battle without the, the uh, ability to finish what you started. You don't go in halfway. You go all the way. Finishes it with this in Luke 14, 33. Jesus says, simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you, you can't be my disciple. Count the cost. Start with the ending. If you're not willing to count the cost and realize this is going to cost you all of those other loves being primary in your life. This might cost you that dream of dying with millions in the bank. This might cost you the dreams of great status or significance, but it's going to gain you so much more. And unless you can get there from the beginning, there's no use starting. And it's tough, but there's actually really good news baked into this whole passage. I said it's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday leads us to Good Friday. Good Friday where we talk about the passion, the crucifixion of Jesus, kind of the anguish and, and the agony. We go from the triumph of Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry, into the tragedy of Good Friday. And yet there's something haunting and profound about crucifixion. And this is what I'm saying is, is, is the good news. So hang with me because it's not going to sound like good news at first. There is something brutal and beautiful in the poetry of crucifixion because crucifixion is among the slowest and most torturous deaths one can take on. It is a slow death. It is an agonizing death. It is not a firing squad or an electric chair. Why is that good news? Jesus invites us to take the cross, which implies Jesus is ready to be patient with you. That the death of self and the taking on of Christ is a process. That the slow and agonizing death of all the things I used to love in comparison to how much I'm going to love him is going to be a slow sometimes agonizing, sometimes difficult process, but it's worth it. That the, the result at the end, you, you're going to lose who you were, but who you're becoming is something greater. And if you're well, ready to count the cost and go, I'm ready to take that journey, then that's the idea. You don't have to be fully formed the moment you decide to follow Jesus. You have to be fully ready to be formed. And if you can get there, then you take the cross, you follow him daily, and as you slowly die to self, more and more of, of Christ is awoken in you and alive in you. Jesus knows it's hard, that there will be better days ahead, and he is ready to give you time to carry that. What Jesus is saying is that we're all in process. Every single one of us is in the process of letting go so as to grab hold of what really matters. Discipleship is both a death and a process of dying. It is a new life and a process of living. It is both. Discipleship, following Jesus, is a process of death of losing ourselves so that we might encounter a process of life which is gaining Christ. 
And we have a patient and a loving Savior. And the grace built into this is that if you carry that cross poorly, but your heart is His, you're all right. If you stumble under the weight of discipleship, but your love for, for Christ is sure, you're okay. If you long for old comfort, if you learn and yearn and want the life that you've left behind from time to time, and yet you hold fast to his hand in your yearning, you're okay. Because he says he'll be with us through it, that he is forming us. So if we will lean into his incredible love and his grace for us in these moments, then we can learn to love him and love like him that our mission to know Jesus and make him known could easily be restated to love him and show off his love. To love him naturally results in the showing off of his love and the overflow of his love. And so as we love him more, we get even more confident at living him out. The discipleship process is a growing of love and then a pouring out of that same love. And so in that grace, we can take hold of this process of dying and enter into the glorious and wonderful and gracious process of truly living. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are uh, gracious to us in your patience and your willingness, your long-suffering and understanding. God, we are grateful for Jesus for not only um, his great grace, but also his great truth. Father, that you are not a a bait-and-switch kind of God. Father, thank you for giving it to us straight from the jump. Thank you for allowing us to see the full picture before we ever decide to get started with you. Thank you for drawing us in so that we might live you out. God, I pray that for each of us in here that are struggling with the other affections, each of us in here that are struggling with uh, some other love in our life, greater than you. Or maybe those of us in here who are struggling with the things we wish we didn't love, we're having a hard time kicking, getting rid of, walking away from. Father, my prayer is that you, Jesus, that you would be our primary love, that we would feel your presence in this place, that we would seek you more. You would be our everything. So thank you for your presence now. Pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.